Today we are uh, starting a new sermon series that I've called Divine Emotions, How God Feels About You. And uh, this series is probably going to run about five weeks, maybe six. And we're going to look at emotions that God has toward us that we see in the Bible. Emotions that the Bible tells us uh, God has toward us. The, the Bible presents God as a God who has feelings. He's not an impersonal deity with no genuine feelings toward us, but he actually experiences emotion. He actually has real feelings uh, toward us. Uh, but before I go much deeper into that, I thought that it might be helpful, at least for some of you who might be interested in such things, to share with you where we're uh, headed over the next couple of months. Uh, like I said, we'll be in this series for about five weeks and uh, then in the middle of May, we're going to uh, give attention to Mother's Day. Uh, don't don't want to have any faux pas there. So we're going to give uh, proper attention to Mother's Day. And then on May 15th, we're going to reconnect with our vision series uh, for one week. And we're hopeful and believe that on May 15th, we're going to be able to present to the congregation uh, some information regarding the planning that's happening for future building expansion. And so we think that'll be an exciting day and hope everybody will be able to be here for that. And then throughout May and June, we're going to be in a series on the book of Colossians. And then as we get into the month of July, uh, we're going to be doing a, a series where various leaders here in the church are going to be uh, sharing their best advice uh, on topics like developing a dynamic emotional life, resisting temptation, resolving conflict, uh, and there will be some, uh, some other topics in that series. And then from there, when we get into August, we're going to be doing a series on uh, the book of 1 Timothy. And then when we get to the fall, we're going to be doing a series on busyness and uh, what we can do about how frantic a pace life seems to be going at and uh, see if we can find some answers in the scriptures uh, about that. So I just want to give you a little sneak peek of where we're going. Uh, those plans are always subject to change, but that's kind of how I feel the Lord guiding for the next few months, and so we'll go with that uh, unless he guides in a different uh, direction. So today we're embarking on this series about how God feels about us, and I'm hopeful that throughout this series you are going to be encouraged by being reminded, or maybe for some of you hearing for the first time, that God is actually quite fond of you. He likes you. Now, God isn't just a detached, impersonal being who has no feelings. God actually has feelings for us, real and genuine feelings. And today we're going to consider the emotion of love. Scripture is quite clear that God has loving feelings toward us. Now, we understand, at least hopefully we understand, that love is more than just a feeling. Love is a choice. True love uh, survives and continues even when feelings of love are not present. But while love is more than a feeling, more than emotion, it is an emotion. It involves feelings. And God loves each and every one of us. He has loving feelings toward us. And one of the really great ways the Bible tells us about God's love for us is through a parable that Jesus told, a parable that's commonly referred to as the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the lost son. And in this parable, Jesus likens God to an earthly father 
a really great earthly father. And so if you have been privileged to have a loving father, you have a loving father, then this is going to be easy for you to relate to. If, uh, if your earthly father wasn't or isn't very loving, I'm first of all sorry that that's been your experience. And then I would encourage you to uh, imagine the father that you have always desired. That's the kind of father that we see in this parable. And that's the kind of father that God is. And the father in the parable uh, does represent God our father. And it reveals to us that God's love is more than emotion. It's a choosing kind of love, but it is also a feeling kind of love. God has strong feelings of love toward us. So let's look at our text today. It's Luke 15, 11 through 32. Uh, Your outline may say 31, but that's just because I'm a mistake machine. Uh, But it's actually 11 through 32. And I'm going to read the whole section. Uh, You can follow along in your Bible or on your device. It helps me to say that because then when I see you looking at your device, I assume you're reading the scriptures instead of surfing the internet. So it helps me to say such things. Uh, I also think it's going to be displayed on the screen behind me. You guys just don't find anything I'm saying today funny, do you? Like, wow, tough, tough, tough crowd. Uh, So anyway, here's what we uh, read. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed, uh, to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you have never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Isn't it amazing how things pretty much just stay the same? You know, I'm sure your kids complain all the time about not getting a young goat. So... um, So continuing on, but when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. 
But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so what I want to do today is highlight five things that we see in this parable, which represent five truths about God's love for us, five truths about God's love for you. And here's the first thing. God's love for you and for me endures our rejection. God's love endures rejection. So the parable begins with this young son, the youngest of the father's two sons, coming to him and requesting that he be given his share of the father's estate. This was a horribly selfish, offensive, heartless thing to do. Well, what he was doing was requesting the inheritance that he would be due when his father died. It's effectively saying, I don't want to wait for you to die to get what you're going to give me. I want what I'm going to get when you die right now. It was pretty close to saying, some people would say it was really exactly saying, but it was at least very close to saying, I wish you were dead so that I could have my inheritance. It's a horrible thing to say. And also note why the son wanted the inheritance. He wanted it so that he could leave the father. And he took the money, set off for a distant country where he used it for wild living. In spite of the insensitivity and offensiveness of the request, all we're told about the father's reaction is found in verse 12. So he divided the property between them. Though it represented rejection, the father gave this son what he had requested. I want you to note that he doesn't rail against the son. He doesn't explode in anger. He doesn't disown him. He just gives him what he requested. And I think as we consider these things, it reveals something about God's love for us. It reveals something about God's love for you. God's love endures our rejection. God's love endures your rejection. How often have we done similar things to God? We've said to God, look, I know that you require some sacrifice of us in this life. I know that you require us to deny ourselves and take up our our cross and follow you. And I know you say that if we do this, when the age to come arrives, when we get to heaven, it's all going to be worth it. And there's going to be this great payoff for the sacrifice that we made in this life, the way that we honored you in this life. But God, I don't want to wait for then. I want to get mine now. I want it all now. So I'm not going to wait to live the good life in heaven. And so we, we figuratively leave God and travel to a distant country, and we try to wring out of this present life the things that God tells us are ours in the age to come. And of course, because we have a tendency to try to fill our legitimate longings for something more with things that are displeasing to God and destructive to us, we, we, we end up doing some really unfortunate things. We say to God like this young man did, God, I don't want to live under your authority anymore. I, I want to make my own decisions. I want to do my own thing. I want to chart my own course. I don't want you always hovering around telling me what to do. Like this young man rejected his father, we often reject God. 
Some of us here today are probably currently rejecting God. You've turned away from Him. Yes, we're in church this morning, and that's a good thing. But you can be in church every morning and still have thrown off God's authority in your life. And some of us here today have probably done that. This parable lets us in on the truth about God's love for us. It endures our rejection. And so if you're currently living in rejection of God, you need to know that God still loves you. God is not erupting in anger at you. He he isn't pacing heaven, beating his fist into his hand. So frustrated is he by you and how ungrateful you are. He isn't venting to the angels about how ungrateful you are. He loves you so much that his love endures your rejection of him. Not only does his love endure our rejection, but God loves us so much that even in our rejection, he never gives up on us. When this young man experienced rock bottom, when selfishness and sin left him humbled and broken, he finally determined to return to his father, and so he set out to go home. And here's what verse 20 tells us of the father. But while he, meaning the son, was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The first thing I want you to see here is to note this phrase, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. This suggests to us that the father was actively watching for the son to return home. His attitude had not been one of good riddance when the ungrateful son took his inheritance and left. Instead, we see the father looking out over the horizon, hoping, watching, praying for the return of his son. As I imagine the story, I imagine the father going to the edge of his property morning, noon, and night, walking the edge of the property, scanning the horizon multiple times a day, hoping that his son is going to return to his senses and come home. God loves us so much. God loves you so much that he never gives up. He never gives up on you. He loves you so much that he will not give up on you. A few of us here today have possibly been convinced by the enemy of your soul that God has had all he can take of you. That God has thrown up his hands and said of you, I give up. But if you've ever had that thought or if you're having that thought today, the enemy is lying to you. God has not given up on you. God is eagerly anticipating your return. He is watching and hoping that you return to your senses and you turn back to him. He's not going to give up on you because he loves you. He's watching for you because he loves you. He's pursuing you because he loves you. He hasn't and he won't give up on you. So if you've been believing that it's too late for you, if you've been believing that you've offended God too much, that you've been gone too long, that surely he's washed his hands of you, then none of those feelings are true. And you need to understand that. Those are all false beliefs. The truth is that God loves you so much, he never has and he never will give up on you. 
you can return to him anytime. So we find that God's love endures our rejection. We find that he never gives up on us. And here's the next thing that we discover. God forgives us quickly because he loves us greatly. So the father saw his son from a long way off. He was filled with compassion for him. And here's what verse 20, uh, how verse 20 continues. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. These are actions of passion. These are the actions of someone who's experiencing intense emotion, someone who has intense feelings of love. I'm told that at the time of the telling of this parable, it was considered undignified for a father to run. And so we see that this father's love is so great, his feelings so intense, that he throws off social norms, lays aside the dignified response, and he responds out of his heart. He responds with great emotion. Not only the running, but the hugging and the kissing reveal the intensity of the father's emotion for his son. His love for his son is an emotionally intense variety of love. So the running and the hugging and the kissing reveal how strong the father's feelings are, and I believe they also reveal something else. I believe they reveal that the father has already forgiven the son for his offense. The son is going to appeal for forgiveness, but the actions of the father show us that he has already forgiven the son. He's not holding out for the apology. He knows, as only a father does, that this action of his boy, the son returning home, is in and of itself the action of repentance. And so he's not withholding his love and affection until the formal apology is received. He knows his boy. And he can tell that in returning, the boy has seen the error of his ways. And he desires the father's forgiveness. Friends, God forgives us quickly because he loves us greatly. You never have to worry if God will forgive you. All you have to do is return to him. He is quick to forgive. God's not going to make you grovel. He's not. He's not going to tell you to hit yourself in the face five times to make up for what you've done to him. He's not going to tell you to stand on the corner of Route 40 and 310 with a sandwich board sign that says, I'm a moron. God's not going to do any of that. You know, you've seen those judges who make people do that, right? Uh, go, go, go stand out there and say, I did something really stupid. God's not like that. He's not going to withhold forgiveness until you've appropriately groveled. He, he's not going to make you endure a little humiliation before he'll forgive you. He'll forgive you quickly because he loves you greatly. Just return to him. And then we see something else about God's love for us. Look at verses 21 through 24. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Notice what has happened here. The father in the parable hasn't just forgiven his son. He is now restoring his son to the position he had before leaving. 
That's what the robe and the ring and the sandals represent. He is being restored to his former place, his rightful place in the family. The fattened calf is killed to celebrate this resurrection, uh, this restoration. And here's what this lets us know about God. Not only does God forgive us quickly because he loves us greatly, but God restores us quickly because he loves us greatly. One of my favorite examples of restoration in the Bible is the story of Peter. And many of you are familiar with this. During Jesus' darkest hours, Peter denied ever knowing Christ. He, he called down curses upon himself. So, so adamant was he that he didn't know Christ. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that then after the resurrection, Jesus and Peter have this interaction where Jesus restores Peter. One of the fascinating things about this is that then on the day of Pentecost, Peter is chosen by God to give the, fo- uh, the first post-resurrection sermon. And this one who had just denied Jesus becomes the one who proclaims the truth about Jesus on the day that the church era is birthed. 50 days, a mere 50 days after denying Christ, God uses Peter to preach the gospel and 3,000 people get saved. Peter did not have to spend three years earning his way back into God's good graces. He, he didn't have to watch from the sideline as John gave the message instead of Peter. Jesus didn't say, well, look, I was going to let you preach this, uh, this sermon here in 40 days, but, uh, but now I'm going to have, now I'm going to have John do it. Now, that's what I'm going to do. It didn't work out like that. None of it worked out like that. He restored him, and just this brief time after denying Christ, he gets up and gives this great, uh, this great uh, message. And friends, we should not underestimate what a, a, a hugely sinful thing it was for Peter to deny even knowing Christ. Like this isn't one of those little sins. This is a, like this is a big deal. You don't get any worse than denying that you know Jesus. And yet he's used by God to preach this important message. Now, this doesn't mean that there aren't appropriate times for proving ourselves and regaining trust when we've sinned. But here's what it does point to. It points to God having a tendency to restore us quickly. And he does it because he loves us greatly. How does God feel about you? He loves you. He intensely loves you. He loves you with a choosing kind of love that goes beyond just feelings, but he does have great feelings toward you. He loves you so much that he's willing to endure rejection. He loves you so much that he never gives up on you. He forgives and restores you because of how greatly he loves you. And then we see one more truth about God's love for us in this parable. And here it is. We are a source of joy for him. God celebrates over us. This boy comes home. The father throws a party. You know, a good parent might remind a repentant child of the importance of not repeating the same mistake. A good parent might 
make a moment of repentance a teaching moment. But here's something a good parent never does. A good parent never uses the occasion of a repentant child to berate the child. A good parent recognizes that repentance is something that deserves rejoicing and celebration. And so a good parent rejoices when their child repents. After the prodigal's older brother objects to the forgiveness and restoration extended to his brother, here's what the father says to him. My son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. God rejoices when we return to him. God will never stiff arm you if you try to return to him. God will never tell you, talk to the hand when you try to return to him. God will never go down the next aisle in the grocery store to avoid seeing you if you want to return to him. God doesn't do any of that kind of stuff. God rejoices when his wayward children return to him. Because of God's love for you, he rejoices over you. All of us in our lives at some point or another have walked away from God, have pulled away from God, have have not lived for God in a way that he desires for us. And so all of us have had the experience of turning back to God. And when we did that, God rejoiced over us. And if you're here today having walked away from God, currently being in that position of having walked away from God, but you want to return to him, whenever you actually do that, whenever you actually return, you need to know that God will see you as a reason to rejoice. God rejoices over his repentant children. So all of these things help us to understand how God feels about us. He loves us. He loves us in a way that goes beyond feelings, but his feelings are engaged. His emotions are involved. He endures rejection. He forgives and restores us quickly because he loves us greatly and he rejoices over us. And then there's one final thought that I want to leave with you. This story, this parable, is often called the parable of the prodigal son. And often people assume that the word prodigal means wayward. I mean, that makes sense as you read through the story that prodigal would mean wayward, but it doesn't. Prodigal means extravagant. The son was the extravagant son. He sinned extravagantly, which most of us can relate to. He sinned extravagantly. But it's been suggested, and it's with significant merit, in my opinion, that it's been suggested that perhaps this parable would better be called the parable of the prodigal father. Because the point of the parable isn't really the extravagance of the son's sin. The point of the parable is the extravagance of the father's love. The father was extravagant in his love. He was extravagant in his grace and mercy toward his son. 
And here's what you need to know about God your Father. He is your prodigal God. He is your extravagant God. He is extravagant in his love for you. I hope that today the Holy Spirit works through this parable and, and, and my attempts to articulate truths from this parable to impress upon you this truth of how much God loves you, how emotionally invested God is in you, how extravagant his love for you is. Why don't you stand